Old Testament reading is Hosea chapter 11. We're going to be looking for our sermon text at Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 23. And we're going to see there that Matthew cites three different Old Testament, or two different Old Testament texts. And uh, one of those is from Hosea chapter 11. So that's why we're reading Hosea chapter 11 this morning. This is the word of the Lord, loved ones. It cannot be broken, as we've just sung. It will stand forever. Let's give it our full attention. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. He shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king, because they refused to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt Him. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. They shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. Then his sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. Ephraim has encircled me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. In our New Testament reading, Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Matthew 2, 13 through 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise. Take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word. For Herod Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And he was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who are in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are... No more. 
Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, and he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's ask him to bless it now to us. Our Lord God, we pray that you would give us uh, ears that hear, eyes that see. Help us not to be those who have ears but don't hear, eyes but don't see. Give us hearts that are humbled beneath your word, that are teachable, that, that, that you would take our hearts now and, and, and take them in your hands and remake them more like the heart of Christ and clear our eyes so that we can see him and love him and trust him. We pray this for his sake. Amen. Well, we're in the final piece of the origins story that kicks off the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew starts his Gospel, like any good storyteller would, with a bit of the background, a bit of the backstory, and he gives us the origin story of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And as he, as he does so, he, he gives us these two chapters, which we're wrapping up today. He, he weaves together all these different themes. Really, all the themes for the whole book of Matthew are, are there, kind of in seed form, in those first two chapters. You can think of it like, a, like an overture to an oratorio or an opera, like Handel's Messiah, for instance, right? It starts out with the overture. And, and there at the beginning, before, the, before you really get into the piece itself, you have all the, the main themes that are going to be brought out in that piece. You have them there kind of in, in a seed form. And that's what Matthew's doing in those first two chapters here. He's like a master composer weaving together these different themes that are going to be fleshed out through the whole of his gospel. And we've seen some of them already. We've, we've seen uh, the fulfillment of God's promise is a huge theme so far. Maybe the biggest theme of all, that God is faithful to his promises. He's bringing the Messiah that he promised Israel he would bring. Uh, we, we've seen that already. Uh, we've, seen, um, we've seen that Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham, the one through whom all the nations will be blessed. We saw that in the genealogy, as you see different nations being brought in even then to the genealogy. There's Gentiles there. And we see it with the wise men, don't we? The, the, the nations are being blessed as the wise men come and bow down at the feet of the son of Abraham. And then we see it in uh, the fulfillment there of the promise of the son of David. Right? Another important theme at the start of this gospel, that Jesus is the promised king, descended from King David, who would bring in the kingdom of God's perfect righteousness and peace and defeat Israel's enemies forever. We've seen those themes. But even as we've seen those things, we've also seen some uh, some, uh, some other themes. We've heard some other themes already. And, and we saw this particularly last time in chapter 2. Uh, we, we see some conflict starting to come in. Right? It's not all triumph. It's not all glorious fulfillment. There's also conflict that's happening. There's also King Herod, right, setting himself against the Lord's anointed. 
can hear Psalm 2 echoing in the background. The, the, the kings of earth set themselves against the Lord's anointed to destroy him. They want to they break off his bonds. They want to bring down the Messiah. And King Herod is plotting, even in what we read last uh, Lord's Day, he's plotting of how he can destroy the Christ. And we're going to see that this morning some more. And we also see that Jesus here in our text is the suffering servant. We see this theme brought in also, another important theme in Matthew, that he has come to be humbled. He's come to be brought low. He's come to become despised, become like us in every respect, yet without sin. He, he's come to humble himself. Uh, and and, and what, a, what a glorious thing to consider, isn't it, that um, he came as the fulfillment of all these promises, as the great king, the son of David, and yet at the same time he comes humble, as a suffering servant for our sakes, that He chose to do this for us. He does this so that He can save us. He does it so He can sympathize with us, so that He can represent us to the Lord. That's what we see here in the text this morning. Jesus comes. He comes, and in the midst of this conflict with Herod and against the kings of earth, He comes as the king who's also the suffering servant. He comes as the true Son of God, True Israel, come to suffer for our sakes, that He might save us from our suffering. And He does this, Matthew, as He unfolds this final theme of the suffering Son, Jesus. As He unfolds this for us, He gives us three different fulfillments. He structures this section of the chapter here with three different little sections, and and each one is a different fulfillment of a prophecy from the Old Testament. So what we're going to do now is unpack each one of those in turn, starting with the first in verses 13 through 15. So our first heading this morning is the Son is saved. The Son is saved, verses 13 through 15. The scene is picking up here, right in the text, right where, where, where we left off last Lord's Day, right? The wise men came to, to see Jesus. On the way, they, they take a stop at Jerusalem, and they're trying to find out where Jesus is going to be born. Herod the king in, in Jerusalem hears about this. He's furious. He's, he's deeply troubled. He's actually terrified, the text says that we read last time. And so he decides that he is going to destroy the Christ. But the, the, the wise men go on from there. They go to, to Jesus. They worship Him in Bethlehem. And then they leave and go back by another way. And after they leave, that same night, it seems like, Joseph has a dream. He dreams. Uh, an angel of the Lord appears to him again as he sleeps. You've got to get out of here, the angel says. You've got you've to get out. Herod's going to try to kill the baby. So you have to, you have to run for your lives. And he says, go to Egypt. Under cover of night, go all the way, the 75-mile trip to Egypt. The contrast we saw last Lord's Day about these two kings, Jesus and Herod, becomes an all-out conflict here. Right? Herod is the king of Israel. He should be first in line to bow down before King Jesus. He should be leading the people in their submission to him, handing over the throne gladly, but instead he's... He's uh, refusing to bow. And, uh, and he, is, he, is, he is assailing Christ. He's trying to murder the Christ. But now the conflict comes to this head. The, the king himself, Jesus himself, has come and, and all the powers of darkness, right, represented in Herod, are after him to try to destroy him. But God intervenes. 
and saves him by this flight to Egypt. The question, though, is why does God allow this to happen at all? Why does this happen in God's providence at all? It could have been so much smoother and easier, right? What a, it was a, I'm sure it was a difficult trip to take an, a, a new baby all the way to Egypt and live there for some time. Why, why did God allow this to happen? Why did he allow what followed to happen? Why, why did he allow Herod to, to do this? The significance here for us, loved ones, is found in that Jesus, God is sending him to Egypt so that Jesus would play out in his own life a replay of the whole history of Israel. He's showing us, Jesus is my true son. He's true Israel. His life is like a replay of the whole history of Israel, the nation. Jesus is the embodiment of all that Israel should have been. He's going to go through in his own life in a miniature form all that Israel went through. We see this first in how Jesus is spared here. Right? It brings to mind the Israelite babies that were spared in Egypt. Right, They're in Egypt. And, and uh, the, the, the king of Egypt is after, the pharaoh is after these uh, Israel, Israelite babies to destroy them. And uh, God spares many of them, especially Moses. And Jesus reflects that here. We also see it in, the, in this trip they make to Egypt, the flight to Egypt. It brings to mind how uh, Joseph and, uh, had, had his family flee the famine that was in the promised land and come down to Egypt with Jacob and the, the, 70, uh, uh, the 70 persons that made up the Israelite nation at that time. Jesus is replaying these events, but the, the event he's uh, replaying most of all is in, uh, is in his return from Egypt. God calling him out of Egypt. What, if, what does this bring to mind? Of course, right? It brings to mind God calling his people from uh, their slavery in Egypt and bringing them up to the promised land, bringing them out of, of, of their slavery there. And, and Matthew wants to make sure we don't miss this. So he, may, he lays it out clearly for us by citing Hosea chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 1, we read this earlier, and there he, he cites uh, this verse, out of Egypt I have called my son. That passage in Hosea 11, I have to understand that a little bit better. It's about how God loved Israel, how he, how he looked on Israel, the nation, and, and considered that nation to be his own son. He loved him like a son. He, he wanted uh, Israel to reflect him as a son reflects his father and to honor him as a son reflects, uh, honors his father. And, and there in the context, what's going on in, in Hosea? Well, Hosea is saying, you've fallen into sin. But the Lord still loves you like a son. Yes, he, He's going to bring discipline on you, but He still loves you. He still desires you. He, he says there in Hosea 11, How can I give you up, Israel? His, he is warm with affection for them and, and desire for them. So what's Matthew saying here? Well, he's saying Jesus is the object of the Father's love, just like Israel was. And he's the, he's the object of the, of, of the Lord's salvation, just like Israel was. Just as God loved Israel and desired to save her from Egypt, so the Lord is saving, loving, protecting His Son, Jesus Christ. There's two reasons, loved ones, why, uh, why this really matters for us. Why this isn't just a, a kind of an interesting thing to see in the Scriptures, but why it's really relevant for us. There's two things I want you to see here. The first is that, um, that we see here that Jesus has come 
to be all that Israel was supposed to be, but failed to be. This is vital for us, okay? Uh, Jesus has come to be all that you and I have failed to be and were supposed to be. Uh, he has come to be the embodiment of all that God's people were supposed to do and, and all you know, the, the, the covenant obedience they were supposed to render to the Lord. He's come and he's done it for us who failed to do it. Listen to the way Hosea 11, 7 through 8 puts this. 11, verse 7 says, My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. Right, that's our sin. We're, we're just like that too, right? The Lord so often is, is, is we, we sin against Him and we rebel against Him and we don't repent. But then, then what does the Lord say in verse 8? How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. See, the Lord is in a quandary, isn't He? In a sense, in a manner of speaking there in Hosea. His people are sinners, but He loves them and wants to bless them and save them. How is He going to do it? And how is He going to do it with us? We're sinners. He loves us. How is He going to save us? It's the same answer. It's in His Son. He sends Jesus to be faithful Israel, to embody everything Israel should have been, to offer the obedience that Israel should have offered. And so in him, because he is true Israel, all those who trust in him are saved. This matters. This is what our salvation rests on. The second reason, though, that this matters is that it shows us that God will save his people from their spiritual slavery. Those who trust in Christ are brought up out of Egypt with him. Not a physical Egypt, right? But the, the, the slavery to our sin. And especially, as we're looking in this text, the slavery to suffering and, and being under the wrath and curse of God. That's what he's come to save us from. That's the first fulfillment, loved ones. The Son is saved. Jesus, the Son, is saved. And we are saved in him. The second is this, the son's sorrow. The son's sorrow, verses 16 through 18. This isn't sons with a a possessive S, as in Jesus. This is sons, plural. The son's sorrow, the sons of Israel. Their sorrow. Matthew turns his focus. So he's he's been looking at what's going on in Egypt and and how Jesus went down there and he's going to be called up from Egypt um, and how his focus has been there. Now he turns his attention to what's going on back in Bethlehem. And it's not a pleasant scene, is it? Uh, it is horrific. This isn't the part of the Christmas story you put on, you know, you put in the picture on the card. This, this, is, the, this is the terrible, tragic, horrific part of the story that you kind of want to forget. Why is it even here? Why, why is this narrative here at all? Why would God let it happen? And why would he put it in the story? It's such a terrible thing to read about these children being slaughtered by King Herod. What place does this have in the origin story of Christ? And yet, loved ones, as I was puzzling over this, what could be more fitting than to include this story? It's such a clear reminder to us of what we need to be saved from. Not just sin, but also all the effects of sin. This is a picture of, of the spiritual slavery that all mankind are under. 
the, the, the slavery to sin and to the effects of sin, being under the curse and under, uh, under, under, uh, under suffering. As an illustration that might help illumine this a little bit would be um, the terrible tragic events that happened in Newtown, Connecticut at the Sandy Hook Elementary School back in uh, 2012. It was in December, December 14th. I'm sure you remember probably right where you were when you read the news about the shooting that happened there and the children that were killed there. And I remember at the time, as I was reading about that happening, I, was, I also read that the town of Newtown, Connecticut, um, really didn't feel like they had, they, they had it in them to celebrate Christmas that year. You know, the lights and the decorations and the gifts. It, just, it all seemed kind of hollow in the face of the tragedy that had just happened. Because, of course, it is. But there's really nothing that they needed more than Christmas in the sense that they needed Christ, the, the Son who had come to save them from their suffering. That's what is happening here in this story in Bethlehem. These children are, are slaughtered here because of Herod's evil and his wrath. Um, all the sons, all the, all the boys under two years old in the region are killed. But it, it, it's, it's showing us that in the midst of all this grief and all this horrible evil, that Jesus' birth has so much significance. That this is what he's come to save us from. That, that even, as, uh, even as Bethlehem and the surrounding regions are kind of being drowned in their grief, joy has burst on them in the person of Christ being born. Matthew, I think, sees this event of the massacre of Bethlehem's baby boys uh, as having this significance. And so he says this too, even this, is part of God's plan. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. He cites Jeremiah 31.15 here. Uh, um, uh, there we see Rachel pictured as weeping over her children. And, of course, Rachel is kind of the ideal matriarch in Israel's history. And she's being pictured as seeing her descendants being taken into exile uh, uh, far, far on in their history. And, and she's weeping over them. And it serves here as a miniature version of the whole history of Israel. All the sorrows and the suffering of God's people that they've gone through for so many generations. It represents all of that for us, that this is a suffering people, this whole people of Israel. But then, in the midst of all this grief, there's this message of hope. And this is, this is uh, right there in Jeremiah 31. So Ma- Matthew cites Jeremiah 31, 15 to say, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that, uh, that a Rachel would weep for her children, these babies being slaughtered. But Jeremiah 31, for the most part, is not about grief and suffering. It's about the coming of the Spirit. It's about the new covenant. It's about the coming of Christ and what that means. It's a glorious chapter full of hope. And it's, it's, it's a message that the joy that is coming will overwhelm all the suffering and all the sorrow for God's people. It's a message that God, God, has, God has heard the weeping. And He's going to do something about it. And it's that point that Matthew is wanting us to see here. And, and he doesn't just want us to see that, uh, that Christ's coming uh, is accompanied by this grief. He wants us to see that Christ, in particular, is the one who suffers with us. And that's where we turn in the final heading, the final fulfillment section in the text here. In verses 19 to 23, our third heading is the Son suffers. The Son, that's Jesus now we're talking again. The Son 
suffers. So some time has passed. Uh, Jesus is in Egypt with his father Joseph and Mary. Herod dies. And then an angel of the Lord comes and tells Joseph, yep, Herod's dead. You can go back to Israel now. Just make sure you avoid um, uh, the Bethlehem area because Herod's son, who's not much better than his father, is there now. So just avoid that area. Go up to Galilee. And so Joseph goes. He goes to Nazareth, this town uh, where he was originally from, as Luke tells us. And, and he goes up there to the far northern part of the Promised Land, and he settles there. And then Matthew says, this was to fulfill what the prophets said, that he would be a Nazarene. Now, this is surprising. It's actually almost embarrassing because if you look down on your Bibles, you probably don't see a footnote telling you what prophet Matthew's quoting here because no one knows who he's quoting because there is no prophecy that we can read in the Old Testament that says that the Messiah would be a Nazarene. So what, what's going on here? Has Matthew forgotten his Bible? Is he just making something up? Well, of course not. He knows the Old Testament better than any of us do, I'm sure. And he's inspired by the Spirit to write the infallible Word of God, right? Without error. What's going on? Well, this is the only place in Matthew's Gospel where he says, the prophets, plural, instead of prophet. So he's not talking about one single prophecy. He's talking about all the prophets and what they bear witness to. He's saying all the prophets, all the prophets are bearing witness to the fact that Jesus would be called the Nazarene. What does this mean, though? What, what is this message? All right, if there's no text that teaches this, uh, what, is, what does Matthew mean by saying the prophets predicted that Christ would be called a Nazarene? Well, Nazareth was, uh, Nazareth was not a place you wanted to be from. You would not want to be known as a Nazarene. Rednecks were from Nazarene. They were kind of the, the backcountry, the, 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 uh, the, the despised by the culture around them. Uh, they were looked down on. They were, um, they were country bumpkins. And uh, so we see this, right? John 1, verse 46, one of Jesus' disciples, Nathaniel, he hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right, that's the attitude in, in, in Israel at that time. You didn't want to be a Nazarene. What, so what is Matthew saying? The prophets predicted Jesus would be called a Nazarene. He's saying Jesus would be despised. And that is what all the prophets say. The Messiah would be a suffering servant, a lowly, humble, despised servant. This comes out clearest of all, Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Jesus is a Nazarene. Despised. And the way Matthew set up these three fulfillments in their order shows us that this is, that this is his point here as well. Right? He starts out by saying Jesus is true Israel. Then he says, Israel, the nation, suffers. Conclusion, if, if Jesus is true Israel, he's going to be despised and suffer, just like the nation did, even more than the nation did. He's, he embodies everything Israel is. He embodies all the suffering Israel has gone through. He himself feels that most keenly. To be the Christ is to be the Son who suffers. Loved ones, this is wonderful news. It's good news that Jesus is the one who is the suffering servant. This is good news for us because we do suffer and grieve. There are so many things that bring us grief and pain. 
and, and he comes as our king who reigns over us with all power and authority, but at the same time shares our grief with us and has wept for us and with us and who sympathizes with our weaknesses and who understands to the nth degree exactly what you're going through. He gets it like no one else does. He enters into the deepest experience of suffering, more than we have ever entered into. So he knows our grief. He's borne our sorrows. But not only does he sympathize, that's good news, but that's not enough. We need more than a sympathetic ear. We want someone to do something about it. He can do that too, and that's what he's come to do, right? He's come to suffer that he might save us. Isaiah 53 again says, by his stripes, by his suffering, by his persecution, we are, we are healed. This king didn't come to uh, be served. He wasn't born in a palace in Jerusalem. He's born in a stable in Bethlehem. He, he, he is, is hunted from the day he's born. He has to flee to Egypt as a refugee. And then he's a poor child of an obscure carpenter in backwater Nazareth. And he did it all to save us. And he's going to go on, right? This is going to be the story of his life. He's only going down from here all the way to the cross and to be buried in the tomb, suffering that we might be saved, that we might have the hope of eternal life in his kingdom. This is what's so compelling when Jesus says in, um, in Matthew 10, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. That he understands and that he is able to save us. Able to save us from our sin, as we've seen already in this origin story, and able to save us also from all the effects of sin, all our suffering. So, loved ones, Jesus can sympathize with you. He's the great high priest who can sympathize with you in every respect. He's been tempted as you are, yet without sin. So if you're grieving or struggling, go to him. Go to him. He understands and he's experienced worse, and he knows what you're going through. Go to him. He will listen to you and be sympathetic. And loved ones also know that he will save you, that he has, uh, he has come and tasted suffering, that he might exalt us so that we would never taste it again. Right? And that's what's coming. That's what he promises for all those who are in his kingdom. He's going to return and put an end to it all and bring, out, bring about the reign of his glorious joy. So, loved ones, give your heart to Him. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would give ourselves to Him and trust Him completely. That we would follow Him. That He would be our Savior. We ask it for His sake. Amen.